All right, so let's look at the book of Obadiah. Follows right on the heels of Amos. And as we uh, mentioned, as we were just finishing up Amos in chapter 9, verse 12, we actually have Edom mentioned. And as you turn the page to the book of Obadiah, you will immediately be faced with the fact that the book is about the judgment of Edom. So, Edom is mentioned, as I mentioned, in 9.12. Most of the prophets have a similar three-part message, standard prophetic message of, basically, you've broken the covenant, repent, no repentance, then judgment, future hope and restoration. However, not, not Obadiah. Okay? Obadiah is shorter and succinct. Judgment is coming, destruction and doom. Alright? That's pretty much it. <coughs> Additionally, find that the, the book um, is a little bit debated as far as the timeline goes. So this is a timeline that we need to be familiar with. Uh, I'll mention some of the, the dating issues in a, a moment, but Edom does revolt against Jehoram, 845. Edomites take captives during the reign of Ahaz. 720. Jerusalem falls to Nebuchadnezzar and exiles are taken to Babylon 586, you know, and Edom falls to uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon of 553. Okay, so that's a time frame to situate ourselves with. However, exactly when the prophecies were spoken is up for debate, as I will discuss in a few moments. Just a reminder again of, of our world empires that are in power at the time. So if we if we end up dealing with a time period in between the five and the six hundreds, then, then we're looking at primarily Babylon, six hundred or um, earlier, then we're talking Assyria. So just keep that in mind. Okay? The main areas that we're gonna be looking at here, you need to understand where Edom is, of course. So Edom is to the east, the right side of the Dead Sea. Alright? The Negev is to the left or west side of the Dead Sea, and Jerusalem is just a little northwest, okay? So keep that in mind as well. Title and general information. Um, the book title comes from the name of the prophet in the book, 1-1, Obadiah. Uh, it's the shortest book in the OT, it's just 21 verses. It's the most difficult of all the prophecies to it might be the shortest. It might never get preached. Could be. Um, but it is the most difficult of them to date. <coughs> the author, as you've probably already kind of figured out, is Obadiah. That's the traditional view. Of course, as I've mentioned before, every, every traditional view has a, a critical or a liberal alternative to it. So Obadiah means servant of Yahweh or a worshiper of Yahweh. Uh, there's 12 different people in the Bible that have the same name as Obadiah, uh, in case you had some trivia questions someday. Um, it's a compound form of the word servants and Yahweh. So it's Hebed and Yahweh. So that's how you get his name. His frequent mention of Jerusalem, Judah, and Zion suggests that he may have originated from or belonged to the southern kingdom. At the very minimum, he's very interested in it. But, of course, theologically speaking, that would also make sense because that's uh, a key uh, place in God's kingdom plan. 
Thanksgiving. So we now we, we look at the date. Okay, so it's difficult to determine. Alright? It's usually based on one of these things here. The position of the prophecy in the canon. Okay? So in other words, it comes after Amos, so maybe it's around the same time or a little bit after Amos, okay? That would be one way of looking at it. But we already know that the, the prophets are not necessarily, just like any of the Bible books, are not necessarily in chronological order, okay? Um, therefore, most likely it's not post-exilic, or it would have been grouped with the prophets that come in the post-exile period. Does that all make sense? All right, now that's just one suggestion. Um, the historical allusions, okay? So you look in the book for things related to history. Like, what can we date that's in the book that will help us have an understanding of when he wrote this? Edom's collaboration with Israel's enemies um, is in there. Um, I'm not sure what I was trying to write there, but uh, something didn't come out. So, <laughs> so don't, don't worry about it too much. Just get the Edom's collaboration with the enemies. So some of these can be dated, and some are a little more difficult to date. Um, because the superscription gives us no chronological information, we can only infer the approximate date. Suggested dates range from the early 850s uh, to the late 400s. So you're talking 450 year difference in time period. Okay? Anywhere from 800 to 400. Um, with quite a few people falling on Since the book presents the fall of Jerusalem as a past event in verse 11 and the fall of Edom as a future event, a probable date would be 586 um, and before the 553 date. So in, in verse 11 it says, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day strangers cast in his wealth, he was born and entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you would be like one of them. So the common interpretation is that that is referring to the fall of Jerusalem in verse 11. That time frame of these events is very difficult to assign, right? Literary similarities are the other thing that is looked at, and specifically as it relates to Jeremiah. So there are several uh, verses that are very, very similar, or more than similar, even identical, to Jeremiah. And so the question becomes, well, who borrowed from who? Whoever borrowed, obviously, should come after the other, right? Because it's an outdated letter. However, another option is they both got it from someone else, right? <laughs> so that, that might not answer your question too well in that case. So that is some of the, some of the, the concerns or issues when trying to date it. Um, there's two major overlaps in wording between the, the two prophets, Obadiah and Jeremiah. Both cases give evidence of notable linguistic similarities, but there are significant differences. In the first instance, for instance, Obadiah 5 with Jeremiah 49.9, um, the comparison indicates that Jeremiah not only presents an inverted version compared to Obadiah, but he also omits the more expansive version that Obadiah has. And so let me just uh, go ahead and, and show you what some of these similarities are up on the screen. There's also a general concurrence that the shared material is a better fit contested in Obadiah. It's 
been widely recognized within the Quran, Obadiah has more the appearance of an original than the fragments dispersed in Jeremiah, since the verses in Obadiah form a united, unified oracle with a sequence and an interconnection, while in Jeremiah they seem to be scattered. Sorry. Um, of course, there's also there's always a little bit of subjectiveness to cohesive arguments. Now I'm a huge proponent of cohesion, SCSU, right? Like they do fit together. Um, but like beauty, to some degree, that's in the eye of the beholder, right? So it depends on what perspective you're coming from and what you're seeing as connecting the pieces. Is that making sense with you? Okay. So you may see uh, catch words, certain words that that uh, that make cohesion, or you may see uh, ideas or thoughts, or you may see you know something else. So it's putting those together and making the best possible decision. So all I'm saying with that is, yes, cohesion is a huge thing. Yes, maybe it fits better than Obadiah. I'm not denying that. I'm simply saying that all of this has a level of subjectiveness to it. All right? So, um, what is the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is that it was difficult to determine when it was written. That's the conclusion of the matter. Um, the exile date suffers from the fact that Israel wasn't around after 586 to be plundered. If that's the case, how could Obadiah's warning have any meaning? Embracing an early date has its problems. One difficulty is the fact that the chronicler makes no mention of the law by Edom and the attack on Jerusalem during the reign of Jehoram. In fact, the writer of 2 Kings doesn't even record it. Nor is there any indication that Jerusalem suffered to the degree described by Obadiah. And so it hardly seems like the kind of national catastrophe depicted by Obadiah. Um, however, the canonical position given to the prophecy, coupled with the apparent use of Obadiah by Jeremiah, suggests an earlier date, maybe during the reign of Jehoram. In addition, the historical allusions within the book itself carry enough strength to adequately explain an invasion during the days of Jehoram, but they seem insufficient to account for the atrocities that accompanied the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Without any mention of the destruction of the temple or the royal palace, it's unlikely Obadiah is making reference to the Babylonian invasion. Further, it would make no sense to warn Edom about entering Jerusalem's gate or having her possessions plundered after the Chaldean forces had already reduced the city to rubble. So, uh, what I have just presented to you is two different sets of scholars. One says it's after the fall of Jerusalem, and one says it's not. So, that helps you as a student out a whole lot, right? So, <clears throat> so what that does is it leaves a big question mark on the date, and it leaves us with uh, trying to understand uh, what the text means. Of course, we're, we're going to have a little bit of trouble if we don't know uh, the date, some degree. Um, the main message is not going to be hard to figure out, however. Um, some of the peculiarities or uh, specific aspects may be. So, let's get our, our heads wrapped around a little bit of the historical context, okay? Um, the Edomites, they trace their origin back to Esau, from Jacob and Esau. So, um, Abraham and uh, Sarah, they have kids, right? Isaac, Isaac marries Rebekah. There's two nations in her womb struggling, Jacob and Esau. So this struggle, starting in her womb, is the ultimate background for the prophecy. Okay? God has said in Genesis 25, 23, there's two nations in your womb. So occasionally they got together if they had a mutual enemy, but oftentimes they were at odds with each other. Um, Esau eventually settled in the region of mostly rugged mountains, south of the Dead Sea, called Edom, 
Okay, the Greek is Idumea, an area approximately 40 miles wide and 100 miles long, and stretching from the uh, brook from Zered south to the Gulf of Aqaba. Aqaba. It was also known as the land of Seir, an ancestor of the Horites the Edomites had pushed out. So it's a vast wilderness. I'll, I'll show you some pics in a minute. But if you look at what else is on the screen here, what do you see? You see a, a conflict that constantly is, is going on. Okay? The birthright and the blessing from Jacob and Esau. Israel and Jacob returning from Egypt. When Israel, um, when, when Jacob returns from Egypt, uh, Edom does not want to let them uh, pass through the land. Um, Saul, in, in 1 Samuel 14, there's a conflict with, with Saul there. but were later subdued under David. They were also subjugated by Solomon, allowing him to build a fleet of ships in the land of Edom. They fought against Jehoshaphat, and then they rebelled against Jehoram successfully, and they were then conquered again by Judah under Amaziah, and then they regained their freedom again during the reign of Ahaz. Then they were later controlled by Assyria and Babylon. In the 4th century B.C., they were forced by the uh, Nabataeans to leave their territory. And they moved to the area of southern Palestine and became known as the Idumeans. Judas Maccabee gained victory over them in 164 B.C. When, when his nephew John Hyrcanus came into power in 120, he, he compelled the Idumeans to adopt Judaism. Who is the famous Idumean that you know of? Herod the Great. So, now, there's also some dispute among scholars um, about how closely he actually was related to him. So, you can put that in the back of your brain as well. Um, Edom played a central role. So um, choosing the day is pretty critical. Um, the
Edom had been actually with Judah since the King David that I told you. But David the commander had devastated Edomite and killing almost all the males and serving with the left hip king. So the Edomites were pure thinking and feeling going to be towards Israel. Yeah. He did. Yeah. You are hated that because that's been passed down from your ancestors, right? So um, that is obviously not going to um, help. But Paul also So, continuing on, uh, the genre. We see we see two things primarily. We see uh, poet poetic stuff, poetry, and prose. Okay, the first eighteen verses, poetry, nineteen to twenty-one, is prose. That's pretty self-explanatory. You know what both of those are at this point. All right. So the family tree. So how how do we end up here in the situation? So if you you get Terah up here. So here's Abraham. Okay. So Abraham, okay, you got Ishmael and Isaac, right? So Isaac marries Rebekah, all right? And who do they have? Jacob and Esau, all right? And then from this line comes the Edomites, all right? All right, so Jacob and Esau, all right? You can see the little uh, family tree right here as well. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, all right? And then Esau... What does he do? Well, he, he's going to move to the, the rocky country, this rocky, hilly country, okay? Um, the Jewish nations of Israel and Judah descended from Abraham, as we mentioned, and uh, Esau, the older brother, moves to Edom in what is now Jordan. Generations later, Edom and the Jewish nations continued to be bitter enemies, and God vowed to erase them. Um, from the... Uh, that, that uh, biblical archaeology uh, website, they argue that uh, the origin of the Edomites at Mount Seir, Seir as a territory dates all the way back to 1950 to 1926 BC. Um, and as they conquered the Horites and they set up an administrative command center at Mount Seir in Edom, and then they, can, they continue on and argue that there has been a, a case for them being there ever, ever since then. Edom burned Solomon's temple, but they, they argue as, as well. So, this is the, the rocky area that you can see. All right, I'll show you a few more uh, pictures of that as well. Okay, so this is this is the area they're living in. They've literally moved to the mountains. And so, in the mountains, there are advantages and disadvantages to this. All right, uh, the disadvantages are difficult to, to get up there. The advantages is that who's probably not going to bother you? Most people. Okay? So you have a level of protection. Okay? You have natural fortifications. You have a natural um, protection. Alright? So um, you can see here as well mountains here, and the, the next one is going to be uh, Petra. This is a painting of Petra. Petra's temple carved from solid rock and captured on canvas in 
1839. You can see that it's built right into the rocks. It's, it's got mountains and rocks on all sides of it. And so this was, this was the pass leading to it. So in order to get to the city, you had to go through here. Now, how easy is that going to be to recapture? It's not, which is why it pretty much wasn't. So that is uh, one of the, the benefits that they, they had there. Some of the strongest fortresses are built in these mountains because the area is e easy to defend and hard to attack. This therefore gave them a, a sense of false security. They thought they were they were all good because they had that. Um, this narrow passage through the towering cliffs leads to Petra, the ancient capital of Edom, um, a city carved into red rock cliffs. Edom meaning red, um, and Petra meaning rock. Prophet Obadiah, of course, warns that Edom's rock fortresses, they're high in the mountains, they won't protect them from the punishment that God is sending. Okay, which tied us in again with Amos. We're coming right after Amos, right? And the roar of the lion does what to Mount Carmel? It takes it down too, right? So the roar of God can take down the mountains. Alright. This is a close-up of what you could see just a little glimpse of from inside the the passageway right there. So you get up closer, and what do you see? You see that this is built into the rock. Okay? And so this is a, a pretty cool thing in, in one sense, all right? Not, not for the, the book of Obadiah, but um, the only way in to Petra is through that path. So once you're in, I guess you're stuck. But on the, on the flip side, that, that was the only way in. So, uh, the Edomites were forced to move south of Israel in an area that would become known as Edomia, as, as I mentioned to you earlier. <clears throat> so, this being the case, what are some of the themes that we have? Well, the sovereignty of God over all of the nations, and the, and the fact that the Lord Yahweh, that, that phrase, Lord God, Lord Yahweh, okay, the ruler of all, the sovereign God, so that is uh, used frequently in this passage. So, a lesson against pride and indifference, okay? Um, what we also find here is that because of Edom's pride, <coughs> because of their lack of compassion, because of their rebellious hearts, we find that we can look at this in, in two, two halves. You've had your day. You've enjoyed your time, right? Today's your day. Okay, that's over. Now, the day of the Lord is near. It's a whole other day. So you, you've done enjoyed exploiting everybody else. Now now your day is, is going to come. All right? This is the same chart we had before from the ESV Study Bible. And the point, again, is simply the day of the Lord. All right? And so you see Obadiah 15, all right, which the previous um, chart relates to Obadiah 15 also, the day of the Lord. That's the day of judgment that's coming. And so here we have it right here, using the image of drinking continually in verse 16. The day of the Lord refers to coming judgment upon Edom and the nations, but salvation for God's people. That's the two sides of the same coin of the day of the Lord. All right. 
just further note, probably, that the Edomites in that, they um, could just continue their enmity against God's people because the day of God's judgment was so near. So, obviously, in a repentance aspect, that should have happened, but it's not. Um, Revelation 11.15 is related to verse 21. Now, if you look, this is going to be piggybacked on what I said in our conversation with Amos. Okay, if you only look for direct quotes, you're not going to find a whole bunch with Obadiah. In fact, I don't think that's even a, a, a direct quote. Uh, but if you pick up on themes and ideas, you're going to find many, many more. So the idea of Edom, Seir, etc. And then if you link, many people link Edom with Babylon, okay, uh, because of the relationship. Part of that might be based on the what I think you said over the date. Um, but the images there begin to pick up. If you also connect some of this with some of the ideas that I'll bring up in, in, a, in a moment probably, with Old Testament imagery, and those images are brought up in the New Testament, then they kind of drag Edom with them a little bit. Okay? All right, so the, the book, the structure of the book. you got the superscription in 1-1. One, one, it gives you the who, what, where, when, you know, as much as they can. The announcement of judgment on Edom, and then the day of the Lord in Edom. Okay? Call to battle, a condemnation of pride, and a condemnation of hatred and violence. All right, then the judgment of the nations and the restoration of Israel, if you further um, break it down a little bit. All right, now a, a, a more visual um, appealing, I always give you like two, uh, structure would be this. It's also easy to teach off them. The verdict of violation and the victory, all right, and wherever I got it is in the PowerPoints. It's, it's cited, okay? And so this is basically the same thing. The verdict expressed, the verdict explained, the violation expressed, the violation explained. Day of the Lord brings retribution. The day of the Lord brings restoration. Okay, so for our purposes today, we're very short on time. Okay, this is the shortest superscription of all the prophets. It gives the minimum information. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us go to war against her. All right, this is the call to action. All right, let's go. It's war time. map of Edom here, and as you can see on here, the the different areas that um, David had subdued, and then um, the different colored arrows are relating to the Israelites and, and their battles, etc., but um, we're going to move on for, for time's sake right now. Verse 3, your presumptuous heart has deceived you, uh, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Now before I make any comments. Does that phrase ring a bell with anybody? Where? Okay. Isaiah, Ezekiel, right? The two passages that are always like debated about what they're referring to. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Um, the, the I wills, I'll send to the highest place. Who's going to bring me down? Okay, so this is a, um, a phrase of, of arrogant pride, right? Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's walking up on the top of the tower. I am the man, I built all this. And God says, no, you're not. You're the bringer, right? So that's what's going on here in their presumptuous heart. The Edomites have been treating their ascended family, the Israelites, with contempt. They stood aloof while Jerusalem was plundered by the Babylonians, if we hold to um, that one, that, uh, that um, date interpretation. Um, so... 
presumptuous heart. Um, Isaiah 14, 13 is uh, pretty much the same phrase, okay? So that's the Isaiah 14 passage, which you can also cross-reference with Isaiah 28, of course. Um, you live in the cleft of the rock. What are we talking about? We're talking about the capital, Petra, right? Um, the, yeah, it's hard to get to. You're, you're built in there. You're protected. Home in the heights, the lofty heights, okay? Um, Dr. Mike Heiser would argue... He's the expert on divine counsel stuff. He's got two books, um, The Unseen Realm, and I think that's a scholarly one, and then another one that's like less scholarly. But he would argue there's a connection here with the lofty heights being associated with the divine counsel pride. Okay? Now, he's not arguing that there's some kind of um, angelic thing going on here. But what he is arguing is that there's an association being made. Okay? Then Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and then in Genesis um, that there is an association with uh, pride and the heights. Okay? And so the Proverbs talk about uh, that, right? Um, pride goes before destruction, right? The uh, haughty spirit um, before fall. So the same type of thing, like the, how the mighty have fallen, or, or the, what's the, we, we do the same pair, uh, Proverbs. Um, we have one for type of thing, okay, um, that is being related to there. So, God gives this message to Obadiah, to give to the Edomites, who live in the secure mountain fortress, um, and he's saying the high living people are reminded that the Lord has a higher position than they do, and he and He will push them down uh, to, to the ground. So, then he says in verse number four, he says, though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars. Even from there, I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. So you seem to soar like an eagle. You seem to be the highest there can possibly be, but I am going to bring you down. And he does so by giving support to those living at lower elevations so they might find success against those living above. So people from the Negev, he says, will occupy the mountains of Esau in verse 19. Okay? And so, despite the fact that they think that they are so high and lofty, okay, they, they will not be, they will be brought down. So, as as they are brought down to the ground, he says, who's going to bring you down? Well, I will bring you down to the ground, okay? Um, that's the end of verse 3. Who can bring me? Though you seem to soar, I will bring you. So, God's going to do it. Alright? It's going to be God doing it. Um, the whole first nine uh, verses or so, 14 verses, is basically how their actions are, are, are a uh, reflection of their attitudes, of their pride. Okay? They don't intercede, they don't help, they gloat over evil, and they participate in evil. Okay? So these are the things I try to teach, teach even our kids um, these things. Like, you don't be happy when something bad happens to somebody. So um, Israel gets sacked by Assyria. Judah gets uh, sacked by Babylon, and Edom gloats about it. God says, wrong attitude, wrong attitude. Um, he tells his own people that, too. Don't be gloating because of, of what's happened to the others, the pagan nations, either. So we're not supposed to have that kind of an attitude. 
you look through the rest of the few verses there, leading up to uh, verse 14. So, verse um, 8 and 9 is, On that day, anticipates the day of the Lord. Verse 15, Neither Edom's political acumen nor its military strength can provide national security. Heman um, is the name of the grandson of Esau. He Here it refers either to Edom as a whole or to a southern region. Just as the Edomites cut off Judah, uh, fixed fugitives, so the Edomites will be cut off. Okay? So this is like it's a payback. Alright? There's a, a retribution, a payback aspect to it. Verse 10 and 11. Just as Esau pursued Jacob in Genesis 27 to 33, so Edom did violence against Judah. And instead of coming to the aid of their brothers Jacob, the Edomites acted like the foreign invaders, the Babylonians. By having cast lots for Jerusalem, the Babylonians treated Jerusalem, Yahweh's holy mountain, like a commodity to be contested. So you shall be cut off forever. Those who harm God's people will eventually be destroyed. And on that day, you know, you react just like one of them. So on this day, you will be brought down low. Uh, verses 12 to 14 spell out Edom's deeds of violence. The gloating we already mentioned. Um, the looting, the capturing, uh, fleeing fugitives, and then delivering them up to the slave trade. The Edomites took advantage of uh, Judah's plight during the Babylonian crisis. Or another crisis. But instead of... Um, Instead of helping, what did they do? They were evil to them. All right. So that's a, a quick summary explanation of, of what's going on um, right there. That's the King's Highway that we talked about that, that runs uh, right through the, the whole area. Probably should have that slide elsewhere. But then the day of the Lord comes in verses. And, and this is the, the end of the book, the last few uh, verses. So the Edomites need to discontinue their enmity against God's people uh, because the day of God's universal judgment is near. It, it is coming. So when you, you look at the, the passage here, and then, again, how would you expect it to end? Probably get some hope somewhere, right? I mean, that's usually what's in uh, the prophets. He says in verse 19 that other peoples will possess your, your area. And then it says in verse 20, the exiles of the Israelites who are in Halah, who are among the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath, that's in between Tyre and Sidon, over on the, the coast of the Mediterranean, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in uh, Sepharad, will possess the cities of Negev. And then in verse 21, saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. So those appointed by God to deliver the people and to bring just governance, there's just again, justice, the Lord has always been the king over the nations, but here the prophet promises the future uh, definitive manifestation of God's kingly rule from uh, Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. The end-time redemptive reign will be inaugurated by the ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus, um, and consummated at his coming in glory. So he's saying that out of uh, Zion, out of Jerusalem, which you help take out, is going to come saviors, deliverers that will rule over the hill country of Esau um, and the kingdom will be God's so it ends with God in control, God reigns God triumphs, God delivers and Edom being judged for their cruel and unkind and unloving behavior so that's a quick overview summary of the book of Obadiah.